Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's teaching podcast. We are in Prescott, Arizona. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. Will you please take a moment just to grab your Bible and we are going to dive in together. Well, good morning. If you are uh, new with us today, my name is Landon and I'm thankful to be one of the team members here. And uh this is our, I think, I'm not good at math, but final Sunday of the year. And so we're uh, thankful to get to share the time with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend time uh, this morning. Uh, this week, I had a wonderful experience where I was kind of just going through the everyday stuff of life, and I was... Uh, able to have this moment where I was just amazed by the goodness of Jesus. Does that ever happen to you? Uh, where I was kind of just walking through life, going through things. I was actually reading uh, the scriptures with my, my daughter one night, and it just hit me, something I've read uh, a bunch of times. And as I read it, I just was overcome with this sense of how good Jesus is, of the actual impact that, that Jesus has in our lives. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, the actual impact that Jesus has today, not just in some spiritual and distant future. But before that, I want to talk about a couple of things that are really annoying. Number one, my, my son is in preschool. He's learning to write. I almost didn't pass kindergarten because I can't write, still can't write. Thank God for phones and computers. What they're working on is like teaching them to write in between the lines, right? And so there's this progression that's supposed to happen with humanity where we learn how to, to put things in between the lines. You'd think we would progress at that. But have you seen people park? It is astonishingly like horrendous how bad people are at putting a car in between two lines. And what's really amazing is sometimes if like two parking spots come up against each other, one person in like a little Toyota Camry or something can take up four of those spots because they go too far. Really frustrating. If a president ever like just said, I'm going to put a QR code on the back of every car and citizens can give other citizens tickets for that, they have my vote, no questions asked. That's number one, just had to get it off my chest. Number two, I've been watching this, this TV show lately, and I'm seeing this trend where, where TV shows keep putting COVID, this whole pandemic, into the show as if that's something we want. That doesn't make any sense. I'm watching a show to not think about that, not to be like, oh, wow, that was really creative. What a great idea. And so I really am annoyed by that and frustrated by it. I don't like it at all, and I'm going to do that to you today. We're going to talk about COVID a little bit. So there you go. It's, it's interesting, and I mean, I love sports. Right now you're seeing all of uh, the sports get shut down. COVID's kind of on this massive kick again. And no matter what you think, okay, about vaccines, about vaccine mandates, about the effectiveness or lack thereof of masks, about herd immunity, about this, that, all of the different things that have been discussed for quite some time. Now forget what you think about it, your opinion, the data, whatever it is. Put that aside. And can you just imagine for a moment with me what could be accomplished, what actual progress could be made if there was actually trust? Like what if our, our society, our culture had trust? It would change everything. 
Even if there's levels of, of disagreement and uh, discord about maybe truth and how exactly things should or shouldn't happen, if there was trust, it would really change the, the whole spectrum, how everything worked. And, and put aside COVID and a pandemic for a moment, what if there was trust for businesses? What if there was trust for our govern, government, federally, on a state level, on a local level? Like that would change a lot. What if you trusted your neighbors fully? Maybe most of all, what if there was a different, greater quantity and quality of trust in households and families? Like, can you imagine that the people that you're closest with, what if there was just a surplus of trust there? And what we recognize in, in our culture right now is that there's a massive deficit of trust in, in pretty much every arena of life. Like, if there's a place of agreement, it's that there's not much trust to go around. There's a deficit instead of a, a surplus. And I had this kind of re, uh, realization, I think, this week, kind of a, a thesis I want to propose about trust. And then that's going to take us to, to John chapter four. Uh, I think for trust to actually be had, to be gained, two things are required. Grace and truth. It's the, the proper blending, combination, marrying of grace and truth. Without both of those, Trust cannot be had. And think about it this way for a second. Truth, absence of grace, will not be trusted. And here's an example because maybe it will just make you uncomfortable. Let's talk about Donald Trump for a second. Imagine a scenario with me for just a second, a scenario here, where Donald Trump says something and it's 100% accurate. No questions asked. Everyone in this room agrees what Donald Trump just said is a fact there would still be a whole lot of people that do not trust what he said, even though the truth was fully there. Am I right? Why? Because there's no grace in what he said. Truth, absence of grace, will not lead to trust. On the other hand, grace, void of truth, will also not lead to trust. In my humble uh, opinion, the people that are the most or the least, I should say, trustworthy in the entire world are those people that only know how to be nice, that can never share the truth. You, you do something and it was terrible and they come up to you and go, you did such a great job. And you're like, that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And they're like, no, it was really great. And you're like, you're lying. I can tell. Like, you can't trust grace if there's no truth. Here's what's interesting. The scriptures actually say exactly this. In John chapter one, we're gonna read that in a minute. What we read from uh, the apostle John is that the Old Testament was filled with truth without grace, brought by Moses and the law and the Old Testament system. And it literally says that it was not sufficient, that this truth was not good enough. God's design for this world is brilliant and wonderful and it's restoring broken stories to beautiful and truth in and of itself couldn't get the job done. Where there's a void of grace and truth, there's a void of trust. And the world then just does not become what it's meant to be. Trust requires both grace and truth. John chapter one describes that a little bit. John chapter four shows it. It shows that whenever and wherever Jesus arrives, grace and truth follow trust comes along. And with grace and truth, there is healing and there's health and there's restoration and there's hope. When Jesus arrives, so do all of these other things led by, spearheaded by 
grace and truth. Grace and truth brings the best for humanity. Grace and truth is love because it seeks the best interest of another. Yet in our world, we lack that greatly. Whenever Jesus arrives, grace and truth come. But is that said about us as Christians? Wherever you arrive, is grace and truth packaged together in the best way given as a gift to people? Do people trust you? Do people trust me? Do people trust us? Because if the Christ is in us, then they should. But do they? I want to go ahead and, and look at uh, John chapter 4. The, the setting and the context is this. Jesus' ministry has begun. He's been j- baptized by John the Baptist, who's proclaimed that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, that he's come to marry heaven and earth and, and make earth what it was meant to be to bring the best out of humanity. He's already performed some miracles. He actually just got done having a, a conversation with the religious elite of the day. And then he goes on this trip, and we read about it in chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, Perhaps it's likely that you've heard of the Good Samaritan. We have an idea culturally, even outside of Christian circles or church, what the Good Samaritan is. Uh, But if you're not familiar with Samaria or Samaritans in general, the, the context is this. In 721 BC, God's people in the nation of Israel were overthrown. They were captured by Assyria. And most of them, the majority of God's people, were taken as slaves away but some of them remained, and they intermarried with uh, some foreigners that the Assyrians left there. And that intermingling in these half-breeds of Jewish and foreign people became known as Samaritans. And they existed and continued to. When Nehemiah and Ezra would come back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the wall, it was the Samaritan people that opposed them. And so the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish nation as a whole, really began to hate Samaritans. They were a people that had no place to belong. Jews hated them and any Gentiles hated them as well because they were half Jewish. And so there's this racial tension and a people that didn't belong to anybody. Yeah, we read in, I believe, verse four, Jesus had to travel through Samaria. We don't know exactly what that means, but it probably indicates that he didn't have a choice, maybe because of time. Oftentimes, Jewish people would actually travel around Samaria, which would add three whole days to the journey. But they considered it a place that was unclean. It was somewhere and a people that you avoided at all costs. But for some reason, maybe a time crunch, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He's tired. He's hungry. He sits down, and this woman of Samaria comes to to draw water. Jesus says, give me a drink. 
It's just he and her there. Depending on the, the translation of the, the scriptures, verse six says it was about six in the evening. Uh, about half the other translations say it was about noon. And it's based upon, uh, they say it was the sixth hour, depending on when they think the hours started. If it was noon, one of the suggested possibilities of why she would go to the well at that time of day when it was the hottest and the worst, most miserable time to do so is because she didn't want to be around people. If it was 6 p.m. And, and still nobody was there, she was alone, there's really only other one possibility. Either nobody wants to be around her, so they just let her go on her own because she is full of shame, she's rejected, nobody likes her, she has no worth or value in this culture, we'll talk about why in a minute. Or she chose that time so that she didn't have to put up with the shame and the rejection and the mocking. Uh, in a few verses from verse 9, we'll read that this woman has been married and divorced five times, and that the man that she is now with is not her husband. And maybe our initial reaction in our American culture to, to reading that might be like, oh, wow, she's made some bad choices. But it probably is not the case in this moment and in this culture. This woman, uh, as would any woman in this culture, probably had almost zero authority to divorce her husband. She had no control or influence. Most likely, she was married off at about 14 years old or something like that. And she probably thought her life was off to a great start and she would have a family and a place to belong. And that wedding day is filled with value until her husband decided she wasn't worth anything and he divorced her. And now a woman who is Samaritan has no place, has no worth. By some sort of miracle, someone else decides, you know what, she's been married before, which is somewhat of a death sentence for a woman in that culture, but I'm going to give her another try. And so he decides she's worth marrying. And so she marries again. And eventually that man too decides she has no value and divorces her. And now it seems like she's fully doomed. But some other man decides, you know what, she has some value. And so he marries her, but eventually he rejects her. And then another man marries her, and then he rejects her. And then one more marries her, and then he rejects her. And then another says, you're not worth marrying, but we can live together with whatever that entails. This is a sad, depressed, broken, lonely woman who has no place of belonging who is rejected on every side, from every uh, perspective, race, gender, identity, cultural customs. She's alone, either by choice or without a choice. Except here is Jesus sitting at this well. well what we see when Jesus arrives is that there's going to be signs that Jesus is there, that Jesus is working, that Jesus is bringing grace and truth and everything that comes with it. And the first sign comes about here. This is what we, what we see. When Jesus arrives, people will be valued. That's the case today. When we arrive because Christ lives within us, people of all places, of all customs, no matter what their history or background is, no matter the sin, no matter anything, when Jesus arrives and the Christ lives within you, people will be valued. This woman was not valued by anyone except for the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe who chose this moment to say you are worthwhile. 
You continue to read in verse 10, Jesus answered, because she's like, I'm of, I'm of no value. Why are you talking to me? Why do you ask me this? And Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. This woman's used to being rejected. And so I think perhaps maybe we can read into this and begin to kind of posit that she's just getting it done with. She knows she'll be rejected by this guy too. She knows the mocking is probably going to come. And so she's just rude, borderline insulting to Jesus. She goes, you're not greater than our fathers. You don't even have a bucket. Where do you think you're going to get the water from? But Jesus just takes it. He sits. He listens. He doesn't uh, allow the insult or, or the offense of the moment to get in the way from what he's seeking to do, from valuing this woman in this moment. Continue in verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She's tired of it. She's worn down and she hates it. Jesus continues, go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the, ma the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is her worst nightmare. She's come alone at this point to avoid this rejection and mockery. And now this guy that seemingly maybe valued her a tiny bit or at the least wasn't going to mock her brings up this. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship uh, what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. What Jesus is saying is her question was all centered on where people worship, that a place was necessary. Uh, about a month ago, we talked a whole lot about a temple and that Jesus took that down so that the presence of God would be within us. That's what he's saying here. A day will come and has now arrived when it's not Jerusalem and it's not that mountain. It's wherever Christ's spirit rests. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is an unbelievable moment. In our Christian circles, in our Christianity, in church, what we almost always focus on is the information we need to understand about Jesus. But look at what happens here. Jesus himself does not provide the information that she needs. He is talking to her as the almighty God of the universe. And guess what? She does not understand. That information does not change her life, but continue. She says, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus says, I 
am he, the one speaking to you. Look at verses 16 through 20 again. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five and the man you're with now is not your husband. Here's this moment of tension that she's trying to avoid and it's, it's hitting fully now. What would you expect from this woman now? Her, her past, her history says she's going to run. She does not have to put up with this. She's at the well by herself for a reason. She doesn't want to put up with this. So most likely she's going to kind of tuck tail and just go the other way and be done with this Jesus guy and this conversation after he brings this truth. But she does the opposite. He says the hardest thing to her, the truth she does not want to have a conversation about, the truth that she's running from, the truth that hurts the most She could run and turn, but actually what she does is engage further. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. And then she begins to ask questions. This leads to our our third sign. When Jesus arrives, our second, sorry, people are heard and understood. In that order. When Jesus arrives, first they're valued, then they're heard and understood. Yes, he had a whole lot of truth. Yes, he had a whole lot to teach. But first, he listens. The almighty God of the universe listens. The third sign is then this. When Jesus arrives, people are challenged to become the best version of themselves. When Jesus arrives, people are not allowed, really, if you will, to stay in the status quo because God has too much for them. Jesus always challenges people to become human the way they were made to be in whatever context that is, whether that's marriage or parenting or business or relationships or how you're neighboring or handling your resources. Jesus goes, I made you brilliantly, and you might not be brilliant in this moment, but I want to bring that out in this graceful yet truth-filled way. Jesus says, there's so much more for you, and I'm here to lead that. Notice, he doesn't condemn her. The truth is shared, and that still hurts. It's real. Jesus communicates it. But then he says, I'm here, and your future matters. What, next for, what is next for you can be good. What's next for you can and should be whole, and I'm the one that will lead that. Verse 27, just then Jesus' disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman let alone a Samaritan woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Remember, he had to go through here. It's not normal to stop in Samaria, let alone to be speaking with a single Samaritan woman, let alone the one who's had five husbands. Like, this is not normal. And this brings up something that's really important for, for Christianity and the church today. When Jesus arrives, there is no group or camp or party that will not get upset at some point about the work that Jesus is doing because Jesus cannot be packaged into a group or party or system. He is King Jesus and he owns his own box and system. And so eventually, at the least, people will un- or misunderstand and not know what Jesus is doing. But most likely what's gonna happen when Jesus arrives and through us is there will be strong opposition. 
because people don't understand the way of Jesus. They don't understand his power and authority, and there's fear in that. So his disciples go, how can you be talking to a Samaritan woman? Why are we even in Samaria at this point? Surely, knowing some of these disciples, especially probably Peter, he's like, how can we even come here? How can you do this, Jesus? Are you crazy? This is a disgusting place, yet here he is engaging in this way. Verse 28, then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the men, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left, their, they left town and made their way to him. And then I'm going to skip to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, now remember before I read this, he came to go through Samaria to save time. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. About the time that he would have been saving by going through Samaria, he loses by staying with this unclean, rejected people. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. This is our, our fifth sign that you can know Jesus has arrived and is bringing grace and truth. When Jesus arrives, he meets people where they're at and embraces their world and their customs. This is kind of insane, but Jesus, the almighty God of the universe, doesn't enter people's arenas, their sphere of life, and go, hey, everything's actually going to be on my terms now. He's king and he's the authority, but he meets people where they're at. He embraces their life. Now, he's going to bring truth and grace perfectly in that, but he meets people where they're at. So five signs that Jesus is working, that Jesus is having his way, that he's bringing grace and truth. And when grace and truth come, so does trust. And when trust comes, so does healing and health and human the way we were made to be. When I was younger, we went to, to Lake Powell a lot, and it's like one of my favorite places. And when it's hot in the day, we'd stay at the, the houseboat on the back, kind of bordering the beach and put like soda cans and bottles and everything all over the beach and have these contests shooting BB guns. It was glorious, had tons of fun. We did all kinds of crazy things. And depending on the BB gun, you had to make all kinds of adjustments. Some BB guns were sighted perfect and you could aim and look Find the sight and the target, pull the trigger, and you're going to hit it every time. Others are really bad. And so it like shoots and just goes, and so you have to aim higher, or maybe it goes to the left a little bit, and you learn how to adjust. When it comes to Jesus giving grace and truth, he never misses. He always gives the perfect amount of both. We're called also to give grace and truth through the Spirit as Jesus lives within us. But you and I are a terrible shot in one of two ways. Either we, we go to shoot and you're a truth person and so you look at the site and you find the target and it's perfect and you take a breath and you pull the trigger and you miss. But you're really stubborn and you go, well, this is how it should work. So as long as I aim through the site, find the target and pull the trigger, it's going to hit and you do it again and you miss. 
And you go, well, this is just how it functions. You aim, you see the target, you shoot, and you keep missing. And you do it again and again and again because you're one of those truth people and your box doesn't allow you to get outside of this way of thinking. And it doesn't matter how many times you shoot, you'll continue to miss. And then there's others of you that just feel. All you have are feelings. And so you don't even look at the target. You just kind of go like, oh, that looks good, and you miss. Oh, maybe this way, and you miss. And you never find the right mark. All of us are, are going to err on one side or the other. Jesus never misses. If you're a truth person, you probably need to learn to not err on truth. So there might be some unhealth in that. If you're a grace person, you probably need to not err on just grace and work on the opposite. Here's the most important part of today, though. It comes from John 1. I was reading this with my daughter that was sitting with me over here in her bed uh, a few nights ago. I was contemplating this grace and truth thing, and I read this, and this is really good news. Just soak this in. We'll put it on the screen. You can read along if you want, but just listen to the powerful reality of what it means that we have Jesus with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, if you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, as God created a perfect world, he spoke things into existence. There was no light, and he said, let there be light. There was no good, and he spoke it into existence. This is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Where his Word went, creation happens and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him. Maybe you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, and maybe not, that what made humanity humanity is when God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He had already created, and then there's this disorder, this distortion that had happened, this thing called sin, and so now he comes into the world to restore it. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was arriving he was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. He walked with us. We observed his glory the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, hear this, full of grace and truth. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. Here we go. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. This is the beauty of what we just sang. Love has a name. Love walked among us. And now love lives within you because Jesus lives within you by the power of the Spirit. So your, your job now isn't to go do better. Notice what it said. Not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. God himself now lives within you by the power of the Spirit. We take communion every week to recognize that you are united with Christ. And so where you go, guess what happens? Jesus arrives. And when Jesus arrives, people are valued. And when Jesus arrives, people are heard and understood. When Jesus arrives, he challenges people to be the best versions of themselves they can, to be human the way they were made to be. When Jesus arrives, it's going to be people that don't understand and are frustrated by how we act and how we love because it doesn't fit their narrative. And when Jesus arrives, grace and truth reign. People are met where they're at. Hope, healing, health becomes a reality. So back to where I started, do people trust you? Do people trust the church, Restoration Church, the church at large, the people that, that we kind of say we are together as a, a family of people following Jesus together? Are we trusted? We should be. And if not, there's probably some quenching of the Spirit going on keeping us from being this conduit through which the grace and truth and love of Jesus flows. So my, my word to us, myself included this morning, is not go do better. Figure out grace and figure out truth. Let Jesus live deeply within you. Invite the Spirit to form and shape and mold you, mold us to encourage one another, spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not on our own effort, but by his power so that where we go, Jesus arrives, and where Jesus arrives, grace and truth reign. Can we be a people that allow him to do his work? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you bring the perfect combination of grace and truth that we need, and through us, you can provide that for everyone else. God, we are so imperfect and incapable, but you are so capable and perfect. May you lead, may you have your way, may you empty us of ourselves, and may your spirit just reign supreme. We love you, we worship you, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. We would really love to spend the next moment taking communion together. Communion is such a special time that Jesus has given us um, when you think about grace and truth, the cross is such a grace and truth moment. I mean, there he goes to the cross, extending grace, extending mercy, laying his life down when we didn't deserve it. I mean, that's an abundance of grace, an abundance of mercy. And yet it was the truth that we all needed a savior, that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's that intersection there that we get that amazing picture of Jesus' grace and truth, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And yet it wasn't just to rescue us from sin and death. 
but he went to the cross so that we could be in relationship with him and that we could commune with him and that that grace and truth, the, the person of Jesus Christ, the personification of full grace and full truth can take up residence inside me and you. And so just as Landon said, as you come forward, take the elements, there are elements available on either side of the stage here. Take those, go back, spend a little time with Jesus, knowing that the one who is grace and truth has already given you everything that you need. Spend a little time communing with him. Take the elements when you're ready on your own, and we'll continue to uh, worship together. So come, take the elements, spend a little time with the Lord. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And again, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. So glad that you were able to join us. And uh, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a little while and um, are still doing the online thing, I just want to encourage you, go get plugged in. Um, Restoration may not be the church for you and that's okay, but I want to encourage you, go get plugged in with the local body. Is there a church in your area that you could trust and join and, and be a part of the body of Christ? There's something that is really valuable and important about journeying together with other people who are on the journey of practicing the way of Jesus. And so um, whatever that looks like, if restoration is a, a place that you could call home and you're in Prescott, Arizona, or in one of the quad cities in the area, we would love for you to join us. If not, I just really want to encourage you, um, go get plugged into a local body. It's really, really valuable. Um, and I truly believe it is important for us on our journey of faith. And so um, again, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.